You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everyone. We're back for another session of the NSPS Radio Hour. We're pleased you're listening to us today, uh, or at least maybe you're listening to us uh, later on after we uh, have done the show and you're listening remotely. We know a lot of our listeners are uh, doing it after the fact, so we really appreciate you doing that as well. I have a a very interesting guest with me today. Bill Morton has been on the show with me once before. It's been uh, over three years now, Bill, since you were on the show. Uh, Really? I know. But it's great to have you back. And and as a matter of fact, I I don't know if you saw the piece I put in our newsletter last week, but I mentioned the fact that when you were on the show last time, you made mention of the fact that you were looking forward toward doing a book on Ellicott, and now that you've done that. And that's the reason I want to have you back today to talk about the not only the book itself, but the adventure you had and and all the things you went through to get the the book put together. I know you did a lot of lot of research. Uh, I did, which was great, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess uh, for the audience, just to get us going here, maybe you can just tell everybody how you got interested in in Ellicott to begin with. Well, uh, yeah, you know he's my guy, and I could. Uh, how long do we have? Do we have like? A month that we can have this interview is it just one hour or less? But uh, you know, yes, and it was the anniversary. I think it was your first anniversary of the show that I happened to get on. I think is that what you told me at that, that time? That is correct. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. So good for you for keeping it up. It's very important. Um, I wrote a book um, after about four or five years about the boundaries of Georgia. And I never really ever heard of Andrew Ellicott, and I never really cared about the boundaries of Georgia. But once I got into it, um, I really got into it. And, of course, uh, Ellicott was extremely uh, important to Georgia, uh, did two of the corners and, and may have done the, the third corner also. He was supposed to, but the Indians kind of ran him away, so he never actually, he was there, but he never actually surveyed that corner. Um, So when I heard about him, and I started reading about him, I said, who was this guy? And I never could find any place uh, that anyone recognized him, really, and he was so important uh, to the United States. Uh, he, he, He was amazing what he had done. So I said, I've got to start looking into him more and more, and and it took me, I think I've been doing it about six years, Uh, and I've been to his birthplace, uh, I've been to where he lived, um, in Bucks County, and also in uh, a suburb of Baltimore called Ellicott City, now it was called Ellicott Mills, uh, where he lived in Philadelphia, uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and where he, you know, was a professor of mathematics at West Point, and <clears throat> where he's buried. So uh, other than those personal sites, I've been all over looking. I really loved learning about it. Now, Lancaster is where he was when George Washington sent, um, was it Clark, to study with Mer- him? Meriwether Lewis. Yeah, that's right. Lewis, yeah, yeah, good for you. Yeah, he's Mary. You know, he was very... It's amazing about Ellicott. He was very close to Washington and to Jefferson, not to John Adams. They did not get along, but to Monroe and Madison and every other politician and famous person uh, in the United States. He, you know, he surveyed 13 states 
or parts of 13 states more than any other human being before or after, really. I mean, it's just an amazing accomplishment. And then he did, of course, the 10 square miles of uh, the District of Columbia, and he did a lot of the cities and the, uh, I'm sorry, the circles and the squares of uh, the city of Washington. Um, and, of course, the biggest and most important uh, survey he did is what really the book is about. It's not it's not really a biography of him, although it just talks about everything I just talked about and about his family. Uh, but it's about that survey that was supposed to really, I think, stop uh, Spain from making their move to own the entire North American continent. They already owned all of Latin America except for Brazil. You know, that's why everybody speaks Spanish down there except for Brazilians speak Portuguese. So I really believe, and I I say in the book, that it hadn't been for Ellicott doing this, we'd all be speaking Spanish right now and not English. Uh, I suppose that could very very well be true. And it sounds to me as though, from all the research you've done, and of course we in the surveying community have some knowledge of Ellicott, although we we don't necessarily think of him in the the historical terms you know we think of him for a specific thing here or there you know a lot of people are are uh, interested in a lot of the work that he's done and you mentioned dc as a matter of fact several years ago uh, a group of surveyors locally here in this area uh, got together to try to recover all those stones and put geodetic positioning right. on them through, from satellites right never got the project yes. all completely done but <laughs> but i guess the point i was going to make is you could almost spend the rest of your life writing about his exploits and never get done, I guess. He, he, I don't know how he did it. Of course, he lived till he was 66, which was amazing because in those days, he was born in 1754 and he died in 1820. So he lived 66 and the average uh, lifespan was 30 in those days. And, and he was in the woods all the time uh, beside getting killed by trees falling on you and the weather being terrible and catching every possible disease you could get and the Indians. Uh, So he lived a very long life and he was extremely productive, uh, as I just mentioned. And I write about uh, a lot of that in the book, too. Yeah, I I think it is good that that you you were able to cover some of his. I I know it's not a biography, like you said, but still you were able to to focus on on the man as well as the mission, which one of the things I found really interesting about it, uh, for sure. And I I don't know if if you want to, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the survey, or maybe you want to talk first about the the research part of this, because that was, I know, was quite extensive, and you, you ran across across a lot of interesting things during the research. So I, don't know I, you want to I did, and I did. And, you know, I'm just a guy. I'm not a professional author. I'm a retired guy. But I got into it, and online is, is amazing. And you can just think of things and write them down, and sure enough, you get led. It's not really always it's entirely perfect, but you will get to the source. And, and the first thing uh, that I that I learned about was not to copy everybody else who wrote about Andrew Ellicott. There are a lot of surveyors. There are a lot of lay people. There's a lot of historians that have written a little about him. And there's also a lot of people who have little small history clubs in various parts. Uh, his brother, uh, Andrew Ellicott's brother, Joseph Ellicott, was very prominent in Buffalo and really surveyed all of Buffalo, really. And so up there they write about Joseph, uh, and they also write about Andrew Ellicott. 
but uh, I, I learned not to copy them because there's a lot of misinformation. And so I went to what I call the primary um, resources. And I, the, the three or four big ones, and the Library of Congress is, is terrific in Washington, D.C. And, of course, most states have a little Library of Congress, too. So uh, I went to the Library of Congress in Washington, and uh, that's a fascinating place. And I found three huge uh, volumes of his letters. These had actually been looked at before by various people, even even a couple of surveys that have written about him. But I took pictures of almost every one of those pages. Uh, some of them, the pictures didn't come out all that great, but I took pictures of there uh, of those um, uh, books. And they also have, which I bought, um, uh, microfiche that you can go to a library and put in a microfiche reader. And they were all upside down and backwards, and they were no help at all. But the books are terrific. And then I knew, as I went through this survey, and I knew that he was sending uh, reports back to Washington while he was on the line and while he was in Natchez, and we'll get to that in a minute, I wondered where all those reports were. And I thought of every word that I possibly could, Andrew Ellicott, the boundary line, you know, Spain. I, mean, I could not find them. And I asked a young woman here in Georgia at the, at the Georgia State Regional um, location of the Library of Congress, and she said, she called me back about four days later and said, oh, look what I found. You may be interested in this. They're in the National Archives, which I'd never heard of, by the way. I mean, I kind of vaguely had, but I'd never been to the National Archives. He said, and she said, maybe you'd like this, and... Uh, she said, it's called the Southern Boundary Papers. And I said, oh, my God, wait a minute, you stay right where you are. And I drove down there, and she showed me what she had, and I said, this is it. And it was. I went up to, uh, it's right outside of Washington, D.C., you probably know it, uh, in College Park. And that's where the National Archives are. And so when I wrote down what I wanted, it's, it's very scary to get in that place. you got to get photographed and fingerprinted. I mean, they've got very, very valuable uh, American historical um, documents and books. And so I said what I wanted, and they said they had it. And they'll wait about an hour, and they would bring it up. This is about five years ago. And when they brought these two volumes called Southern Boundary Papers that had never been checked out, they said to me, these books, we didn't even know we had these books. They have never been checked out in the National Archives. And I was trembling, and I'm kind of trembling right now, because this was it. This was everything that this guy sent back uh, for four years. I mean, it was unbelievable. And as I, as I tell people the story, I, I, said, I even found the names of the rowers who rode him down the rivers to get to Natchez. So that was a tremendous find. And I've been back there, oh, probably five times over the years. And uh, I keep taking pictures of all that stuff. So those two were big. And anybody who wants to write a telecom, and I have a very good bibliography, and I want to share it with everybody, uh, they need to go to the Library of Congress, and they need to go to the National Archives. Yeah, that uh, the National Archives is 
kind of the holy grail in a sense. I, I've been fortunate enough to go there a couple of times. It's, I remember the first time I went, it was, I was almost as nervous as if I were walking into a nuclear facility or something. Right. <laughs> because there's, right. there's kind of a reverence for the whole thing, you know, and, and, uh. Yes, exactly. It's pretty, pretty darn <laughs> well, I'm glad you felt that same way because now I don't feel like, well, you know, I feel like I was a stranger there and everybody knew everything. It turns out everybody was like me because I was talking to people, you know. So that's great. Yeah. Uh, one other one other thing I found that I really want to bring up too, because I've rarely spoken about this, and that is they're in Spanish, and they're called the Papeles Procedentes de Cuba, and that means the papers from Cuba, and these Papeles Procedentes are reports that are all of the commandants of every one of the colonies of Spain over South America and all throughout the West. Well, that's a good there teaser, be... Bill. For, we're going to have to go to break here in about 10 seconds. Okay. So that's a good, good teaser for our second segment. Which we'll okay, right fine. Back Stay to tuned. To yes. Yeah, thanks. Okay. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.seanstedt.com. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. We're back with Bill Morton today talking about Andrew Ellicott and his adventures. And as we were leaving for the break, Bill, you were talking about, um, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Spanish documents. No, right. But, right. but uh, it, that's quite a, quite a story within itself. It is. Uh, and these, these papeles, and they're called legajos, that's another word, which means bundles. So the papers were subdivided into bundles, and everybody from Santa Fe, Santa Barbara, San Francisco, uh, San Antonio, uh, New Orleans, uh, Pensacola, St. Augustine, 
every one of those commandants at all those missions and those colonies sent back to Cuba and eventually back to Madrid and reported what was going on. And this had been going on for, oh, maybe 30 years. See, Spain, and I'm going to talk about the history of this in a minute, Spain really got going on the western side of the Mississippi on the northern continent uh, right in 1763. So from 1763, by the time Ellicott got there, which was in 1796, 97, you know, that's almost 30 years, uh, over 30 years. And there's a lot of reports. They estimate them to be anywhere between 300,000 and 400,000 of these bundles, these legajos. And each bundle could have 100,000 reports in them. So I wandered into those. Uh, first at the university, I went to a bunch of special collections libraries all over. Uh, and then when I found out about these legajos, I started writing them. And I, my first ones I went to were in a uh, University of Florida, but they're in North Carolina, they're in Louisiana, but they're all in Spanish. And um, so I had to hire um, some people to uh, um, translate them for me. But, but what happened was in 1904 or 1905, now people have known about these Spanish papers, but they were very obscure. First of all, they weren't in the United States. Most of them were in Cuba or Madrid, really, Seville. That's where the repository is. Um, but a guy made a catalog in English, and I actually looked it up last night, and if you just write down the catalog for the Papeles Procedentes de Cuba, it comes up with this guy who has a catalog in English and alphabetical, and as soon as I got that, I could not believe it. I just looked under Ellicott, and he's mentioned, you know, 4,000 times. Now, this is from the Spanish side of it. You know, people talking about Ellicott, and a lot of that has been translated into English. So the catalog itself was unbelievable. Um, it was just an amazing thing. So, And I put that in the book because I encourage other people, you know, to stand on my shoulders and go write more about Ellicott. I don't know if it's in me to do any more, <laughs> but uh, there's, there's a lot available. So with with those, I'm intrigued by these these Spanish documents, and I, right. I particularly was intrigued when you said I'm more in North Carolina. That that surprised me a little. I was thinking Texas, California, <laughs> wasn't thinking yeah. North Carolina. But right. I, I guess I'm a little curious when you said they spoke about Ellicott. Did how did they how did they refer to him? Is he is he revered for his exploits there too? Or, uh, or? no. No, no, no. They don't look at him that way. Let, let me tell you what happened, because this is really important. When I started looking at it, and then I realized this was a survey about the boundary line between the United States and Spain, my first thought was, and uh, everybody else that I've ever mentioned to, they say, Spain? What the heck was Spain doing here? And, of course, I, I, and I was a history major. I loved history, and I had never, I had no idea what happened. So if I can take just a few minutes to talk about the history of it so we'll all understand what this book is about, really. And uh, you have to start with Christopher Columbus, okay? <laughs> and I'll, I'll get us up to speed in about three minutes. But Columbus got here in 1492. As soon as Columbus got here and discovered this land here, everyone else came over. The, there were Russians, Spanish, French, Dutch, 
you, every country sent people over here for about the next hundred years, particularly the French and the Spanish. But Dutch were here, German were here, Russians were here. The only person who wasn't here, the only country who wasn't here was England. England didn't get here until 1609. You know, that's a, a hundred years later, more than a hundred years later from when uh, Columbus got here, let's say in 1500, 1492. So England was very late. They get here in 1609, and, and that's when Jamestown was here. Now, England immediately got a bunch of charters and a bunch of colonies. They were very rich. They were very strong. And so we had the Carolinas, you know, and then Virginia and Maryland, Delaware, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania. And so they built up a huge um, force here. And during the next 150 years, from 1609 to 1763, it's 150 years, they had these colonial wars, and everybody was fighting because they're trying to kick everybody else out. And finally, at the last colonial war that we know of as the French and Indian War, uh, we call it that, at that time, England got everybody out here. Now England owned everything from the tip of Canada down to the tip of Florida. And they kicked everybody out. So France went west of the Mississippi, uh, Spain went west of the Mississippi, and everybody else disappeared. So that was in 1763. The very first thing that happened with England, we always think of having 13 colonies here, but they were really 16. England immediately made another colony called East Florida, and then one called West Florida, and then they made another one up in Canada called Quebec. So that was in 1763. Now, what happened in 1763 for the next 20 or 30 years is that the 13 colonies revolted, and we had a war called the Revolutionary War, and that started in 1775, and that war was over in 1783. So in 1783, we have a new country, the United States of America, and England is kicked out. It took England 150 years to kick everybody else out, and it took these 13 colonies to kick out English. I mean, to England, it's, as we say down south, it's a hell of a story. <laughs> okay, so that's what was going on with the colonies. Now, 1783, let's get up to there. So now there's a, a new America, and they didn't really care about Florida. That Florida really wasn't a part of their thing, but Spain did. And Spain now took over Florida. And Spain, meanwhile, was given Louisiana by the French for helping out during their revolution. So now Spain now owns all of Louisiana. Spain owns the Mississippi River. Spain owns everything west of the Mississippi River. That's why they have these cities, San Antonio, Santa Fe, that I've mentioned, Santa Barbara, you know, because all this is Spain. So not only did they have the Southern Hemisphere, now they have the Northern Hemisphere, too. And the first thing Spain did was cut off the Mississippi River to traffic. And that was a big problem for the new struggling United States of America. And the story begins there. And I know we're probably going to have a break pretty soon, but let me just say that there was a treaty between Spain and the United States that was called the Pinckney Treaty in which Spain agreed they would open up the Mississippi River 
and Spain also agreed on this southern boundary, the first international boundary between the United States and Spain. Have I have I done that good? You did right. And, and by the way, we have about four minutes left before the break, so you can. Oh, okay, good. You're good. good. So, yeah, I was just. It, I, it's really confusing. I was trying to get all those dates in. So now we we get back to Ellicott. There's a treaty now between Spain and the United States. Uh, and the, the treaty, as I just said, opens up the river. And that was very important to the United States for commercial traffic. It also said we are going to have a boundary line there. Spain was still very interesting, interested in keeping up their presence on the uh, uh, northern continent. Washington calls my guy, our guy, Andrew Ellicott, the most famous astronomer surveyor in the new country. He had already worked with him in setting up um, the District of Columbia. He and he calls him and says, "Go down there and find that 31st latitude." That was the line, the 31st latitude that was agreed upon by both the United States and Spain to be their new boundary line. Go down the Mississippi River, find where the 31st is, and survey that line all the way over the Atlantic Ocean, 530 miles. And that's what this story about. It's it's his four year expedition to do that survey. Uh, all that went on never been written about. Kurt, no one has written about this. No one has the names of the rowers going down the river. No one has his uh, his his day to day operations. It, it's a heck of a story. People have written about parts of it, including surveyors. But no one has gotten from the day that he started to the day that he returned. You know, I guess that that uh, is proven out by the fact that nobody ever got into these archives before, right? Exactly. <laughs> It'd be hard to right. tell that story without the without all that information. No doubt about that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, for sure. And so that's really where where we start. Although I guess where we really start in his journey for this isn't necessarily when he started his observations, but uh, from my understanding right. of, of reading, it was quite an adventure just getting there and getting started. Yes, it was, and I do want to uh, want to talk about it, but I want to make mention that you read this book and you endorsed it for me, and I asked you to do that because I had known you from when you interviewed me previously, and, of course, you're a surveyor. So I thought you would be able to understand what I was trying to write down better than most lay people, for sure, and... Remember, I know nothing about serving. I'm terrible at math. I really, I'm a his, I'm acting as a historian here. So, uh, when you agreed to endorse the book, I felt like, well, you know, maybe I did write something down here that's that may be good for the rest of the folks to read about. So, I really appreciate you doing that for me. Well, and the thing that I think in, intrigued me as much as anything else about the book was the fact that it it's so it's one of those things that that people in our profession, the serving profession, is drawn to. You know, we're, we're drawn to everything historical, but we're also drawn to a good story um, about surveying. And, and we always complain that it doesn't get played up well enough. And I, There's even a guy in Australia who's gone through and, and uh, put clips together of any time they showed a piece of surveying equipment or spoke of surveying in the movies. It's so rare. So, really? Yeah. Really? And, and so just... To have uh, something like this that that's really quite detailed, and uh, and and tells sort of a whole story from beginning to end, 
um, was one of the things that intrigued me most about it uh, was just this idea that this actually exists, and it almost becomes a, a primer, if you will, about, about you know, uh, our history. I believe it's the most famous story, because I believe this since I wrote it. It's the most famous surveying story that surveyors has. I, I know Thompson was up uh, in uh, Canada and uh, you know, north of um, we're going to have to uh, go Montana, to and he was very big out west. But we got to go to break here in about five seconds, oh. so we'll be back okay, shortly and, and pick up on that side of the story. Okay, great. Thanks. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next-generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use easy to find and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quick stakes today. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.seanstedt.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. So we're going into our third segment now with Bill Morton, and we've talked about the run-up to the story itself, or, or at least the surveying portion. The, the, the story is much broader than the, just the surveying portion, just pulling everything together. But So you've kind of led us to that point, Bill, so I'll let you run now and and fill us in with the rest of the details. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, well, I'm trying to figure out where I should start here because I, I, I want just everybody to remember we're talking now about the 1795 treaty between Spain and the United States. So the first thing that uh, Washington, who was president at that time, uh, Washington got in touch with Ellicott and said, I want you to go down there, as I mentioned a minute ago, and and survey that line and measure it and mark it. And he said he'll do it. It took about a year for Ellicott to get his team up. He went with anywhere from 60 to 70 people. He keeps changes the numbers, so I'm not exactly how many, but he had a lot. Remember, he's going to the middle of nowhere, and he's got to take uh, pigs and cows and horses and men and guns and, uh, I mean, laborers and chain carriers and scientific equipment and uh, wagons. It's just amazing what he had with him. Um, and speaking about his uh, instruments, they are all uh, in the bowels of the Smithsonian, the American the Smithsonian Museum of American History, I think is the title of it. It's in Washington, D.C. And um, I called those people and spoke with them, and they were great. And I've been there 
with my wife. My wife's been with me to every place <laughs> that I've mentioned. So we went up there, and they take us in the back, and they show us his compass, his quadrant, uh, his uh, pendulum clock, his zenith sector. I mean, this is what he used. This He touched it, and I touched it. You know, and I took a zillion pictures of it, and I have some of them in the book. Uh, but I just could not believe that there they are to, to, to see. Um, but anyway, getting back to what happened was he, he organized everybody, asked for money, and he... Um, it took him until about September of 96. Remember, the, the treaty was in 95. It was ratified by the United States in early 96, maybe March. And he had been working on it uh, all that year, getting his team up. And in September of 96, he and his son, Andy Jr., he was about 19 or 20 or 18, and he had been with his father on, on previous surveys, so he went with them. And um, they sent some of the wagons uh, with some of their delicate instruments uh, up to Pittsburgh, but Ellicott and his son and um, uh, Thomas Freeman, who was the surveyor on this trip, Ellicott was called the commissioner, and uh, Thomas Freeman, that we know of also, was called the a surveyor. And I'm a little surprised about that because Ellicott was not a commissioner. He was not an administrator. He was a, he was a guy who wanted to do the work, but somehow or other he got put in charge of this. And that was going to be a problem. <laughs> I saw that coming right at the very beginning, and I'm sure Freeman and Ellicott saw it coming too. And we can talk about that in a minute, but they go down, uh, and Freeman accomplished him. And by the way, this book is about the journal, the 1803 Journal of Andrew Ellicott that he published when he got back. And I have an original copy that a descendant sold to me for not much money. And this thing is an 1803 450-page book. It is gorgeous. It smells like 1803. <laughs> I mean, the book is great. He's got all his maps in, in uh, there that fold out of the book. I've shown it to many, many people, including when I spoke at the Surveyors Historical Society last year. I showed him that book, and it's just great. But it's, it's hard, you know. It's very delicate. So this this story is is that I wrote about came from that journal. There is not one word in that journal that mentions. Thomas Freeman. You would think he never was even on the on the survey, and I go into it a great deal because if it weren't for some letters that I have found also in the Library of Congress, uh, mainly a 16-page letter uh, that uh, Freeman wrote to the Secretary of State uh, halfway through the survey, and that's in something called the Peter Force collection. It sounds like I know all this, but I'm just telling you I've stumbled into all these places, some one way or the other. But there's nothing in Ellicott's journal that ever mentions the name Thomas Freeman. And that's a big part of this story. Anyway, he and Freeman go down along with Andy Jr. and they go visit the mother who's in Ellicott Mills, now called Ellicott City. And then they go from there back up to Pittsburgh where they meet their military escort and they get boats and they get supplies and um, they decide to go down the Ohio River where it, where 
will eventually run into the Mississippi River, and then they go down the Mississippi River to Natchez. Um, Natchez was picked by the, the makers of the treaty because it was somewhere near the 31st, but mainly it was the site of a large uh, Spanish fort and a Spanish administrative um, uh, business uh, buildings, a bunch of them. So he, Ellicott, knew that he had to meet the uh, Spanish team in Natchez. It took him about three months to get down the Ohio River, and he stopped along the way at various forts, and he describes all that and the people that he met. And then when he got to uh, the confluence where it meets the uh, Mississippi, uh, he took his first sightings there that he writes about. He, he, he took more, but he doesn't write about them because he has these maps, a gorgeous map of the Ohio River and the Mississippi River, and it's got all that longs on it, so it's all done. So we know that he was taking them, but he really, the first mention of any um, observations and calculations that he did to find out where he was was at the confluence. And that took him almost three months. He got there around Christmas time. He, he left maybe October early October, and he got there New Year's Eve or something. So that took him a long time to get there. And then he started going down to um, Natchez, down the river. He had never been there before. There were no maps. Uh, He made a beautiful map uh, of that part of the Mississippi River, too. Um, He had a little trouble with some of the Spanish people not wanting to go down, saying the treaty was off. And then he finally uh, got into Natchez, and this is the big pro- this is the big historical thing that that people write about with Ellicott. They write about that year in Natchez and what he did to make this treaty happen. And uh, as I said before, he's he's not a diplomat. He's not a negotiator. Ellicott is a brilliant guy. He's self taught. Uh, may have had some people help him along the way, but basically he taught himself about instrumentation and mechanics and mathematics and astronomy. Uh, he taught himself how to read and write scientific papers in French. He taught uh, when he went up and was chosen uh, to be the professor of mathematics near the end of his life at the uh, West Point the University, uh, Un- United States Military Academy, he taught himself calculus and was the first to teach calculus to the cadets up there. He was a brilliant guy, you know, but he was also a controlling guy. He was a CEO guy. He was a my way or the highway kind of a guy. You know, he didn't make friends easily because he was, he, he just really couldn't come down to their level, I believe. So he constantly had problems. Uh, problems with people firing him and hiring him and not paying him, and accusing him of doing all kinds of things. But he was he was definitely a patriot. He was definitely uh, for the United States. He writes about it over and over again uh, in his books. Um, and he and he and I have published a lot of, of what he writes about political. Um, his political sense of things. He was against, he was a Quaker, so he was against slavery. But uh, listen to what he writes. 
he wrote to the North Carolina governor in 1812, this is 12 years after he got back, and he's saying, I was merely the interpreter for the stars, and they cannot err. I mean, it's hard to make stuff like that up. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty interesting. You know, one of the things you just said about um, um, some of his characteristics uh, yeah. So, some some people would say that all of us who are surveyors have those same uh, cantankerous attitudes, <laughs> and, and that's yeah. not really, not true so much necessarily. But but you know there there is something to be said about that. So we're we're following our famous historian sometimes. I guess. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't really think of it through. See, that's how surveyors think. They just don't think like I think, which is great. <laughs> but you do make a good point, right? And then the guys that I've met uh, in doing, and I've been on the line with a bunch of surveys, they've all just taken me in. Uh, I've, I've mentioned their names before. Um, uh, Bart Craddy has been unbelievable. Uh, Milton Denny has been great. Tom Robertson. And these guys have taken me under their wing. They know I know nothing about it. And they listen to me pontificate and tell them all about astronomy and surfing. And uh, I hope I'm pretty right on most of this stuff. But, I mean, I've really been taken in by the community. Listen to what else he writes uh, when he's down in um, in um, Natchez. He, he writes to the governor general, uh, Gayoso, who was his buddy. And um, he says, it is pleasing and a very interesting reflection that the present state of science is such that we can extend our views to the heavens and from them determine with precision the boundaries of the various governments. I mean, this is a guy who's not a polished guy, you know, and he keeps writing these things. It's just, just I'm, I'm in love with him. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. No one's ever heard of him. He, he doesn't get any... He doesn't get any praise. Um, he, there's not a stamp that has uh, Andrew Ellicott's name on it. And by the way, um, I have um, nominated him to be on the United States Postal Stamp, and he passed the first um, committee. So I'm waiting to hear what what's going to happen. That would that would certainly be. Uh a feather in the cap for the surveying profession, would it not? I mean, we it's kind of interesting, and, and you know this, of course, but we we in the surveying community talk about Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, those kind of guys who were had connections to surveying. Lincoln actually was a surveyor, and Washington right. to some degree. Um, but you're right, Ellicott doesn't get mentioned in those same discussions very much, even even amongst us, which is which no. Is kind of Interesting. So Benjamin Banneker does, and yeah, Banneker does, yeah, does, and uh, he he may have been a surveyor. Uh, people try to connect him on with uh, Ellicott, and there there is now definite proof, and I believe that he did accompany Ellicott uh, at the very beginning of the survey. By the way, we we, uh, we have to go to break yes. now, so we'll we'll be back. Okay. All right. Good. Getting into underground utility location? If so, you'll want to know about the Schoenstatt Instrument Company's MPC kit, a multi-purpose combo for locating both ferrous objects and underground pipes and cables. And because it consists of two instruments in one package, it qualifies for trade-in allowances on two locators, any kind, any make, any condition. Contact your dealer for details 
or visit www.shonstat.com. That's S-C-H-O-N-S-T-E-D-T.com. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next-generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we're back with our final segment today with Bill Morton, and it's going to go quickly, and we won't have enough time to do all the things we wanted to do, Bill, so we, we may have to come back uh, another time. <laughs> but but so far, it, it's gone really well. So just, you you were talking about his year in Natchez, and I know you want to finish up on that. Yeah, then. yeah I, do, I do want to tell about that, because that's what surveyor is right. Now, I have looked at every, and I, hundreds, literally hundreds of books and journal articles that were mainly in the 1800s about this survey. Somehow or other, even this um, treaty between Spain and the United States gets overlooked. But Ellicott spent one year there, and he writes about it very, very carefully. And what he doesn't write about in his journal, he writes about in these letters back and forth to uh, the Secretary of State Pickering in Washington. And it is clear that he stood up against the Spanish, against uh, the governor general in New Orleans, against the governor in uh, Natchez. Uh, they, they lied to him. They delayed things. Uh, they did everything they could to not carry out the treaty. And he stood up to them. I mean, he could have started a war down there. He could have left. They could have killed him. I mean, a lot of things happened. And that's why I say because... They finally agreed to go along with the treaty after a year. He's waiting there for a year with all these people. Uh, they left, and I'm saying that was the beginning of the end of Spanish uh, dominance on the northern continent because 20 years later, Spain gave up uh, the Floridas. You know, Florida became a, um, a state eventually in 1818 or 1820-something like that. And then Spain gave Louisiana back to the French when uh, two years after Ellicott left. And the French the next day sold it to the United States of America, what, for $11 million. So Spain was on the way out, and, and Ellicott started it all. I'm just convinced of that. Um, but the rest of the book really is about the survey and about how he found out latitude and longitude. Uh, surveys know how that's done, but... Um, it's all done with astronomy. He was taking angles of various stars and planets, and um, he had books with him. He had the Nautical Almanac, um, the uh, in, uh, 
England's nautical almanac, which just came out uh, about 20 years early. I think the first one was about 1765, and so maybe 20 uh, years later, he's got one that had all uh, of his references that he could refer to. And I have a 1796 uh, original uh, rare copy of the um, British uh, Admiralty Almanac. It's gorgeous. And he, he that's the one he used, and I can look up there, and I see that Ellicott picked that same number out on this page. I mean, it's just, it, it really kind of grabs you to, to see how he did it. Um, so the story has a lot uh, of intrigue. There's a lot of uh, spying. There's counter-spying. Uh, he had a, a friend um, who was helping him on the inside that I have letters in code from the friend. I have letters in code between Ellicott and uh, Pickering back in, in Washington. And, and we learn more of the inside of it because a lot of people are critical of Ellicott. They say he was pompous when he got down there and that he controlled the citizens. Most of the people who lived in Natchez were Americans. They weren't Spanish, and that was really the problem with Spain. Most of the people in the entire North Continent, west of the Mississippi, were not Spanish. They were either Indians or they were frontier people that were Americans. So they had a big problem, and that's why they couldn't get the devotion from the people because they weren't really nice to the Indians or to anybody. The Spanish weren't. So Ellicott walked most of that way until the Indians began giving him a lot of trouble, the, the Creeks mainly and the Seminoles. Uh, when they finally got um, to about two-thirds of the, of the way, uh, and he, he talks about every single day, and I, and I virtually have not every day but every week, uh, of where they, how they did it and where they went and the problems they had. Um, they had to cut a swath 60 foot wide in the, in the woods and there were bamboo and there were swarms of snakes and he describes even a, a panther that they came across. So it was not easy and the weather was terrible and the mosquitoes and the ticks and the poison ivy. I mean, it, it was not good. So um, he finally gets to where the Indians are really a problem. That's at the Chattahoochee River. Uh, and they decide to split the team up. Some were going to walk across the peninsula of Florida without serving it. And then meet Ellicott, who decided to take this boat that he had built in New Orleans. And he was using the boat to bring supplies back and forth. And Ellicott sailed around uh, with about 22 people uh, on this 40-ton uh, boat. I don't know how long it was. I can't find that, but I know that it was 40-ton, which is a serious boat. He had never been on a boat outside of land. He had never done any navigation at all. Uh, it's amazing that he did this. So that's when I found out that I loved Ellicott. <laughs> when I read that as I was reading the, the Georgia Boundaries book, that's really where Ellicott came up. And so he sails around Georgia. Now, I have a, I say this, and I'm just trying to emphasize something, not that what I have, but I have a Coast Guard's license, and I'll sail around Florida, and I have sailed around Florida, but I'd like to have a depth finder, I'd like to have a compass, I'd like to have food, I'd like to have water, you know, I'd like to have weather reporting. Uh, oh, yeah, I'd also like to have a motor this guy did all of that with 22 people. They had hurricanes. He went at the worst time of the year, you know, October, November, uh, and he made it. 
there was one, the cook fell over, uh, John Ransom, the name of the cook fell over and drowned. That was the only problem they had. That was when privateers, there was a war between France and England, and uh, the United States was trying to stay out of it, and they had these privateers getting any boat there and stealing them and putting people in, in chains and killing them. And he survived the whole thing, and he showed up at St. Mary's. Uh, they went up the St. Mary's River. Uh, they found the headwaters. They marked it. Uh, they spent another couple of months at uh, Cumberland Island doing their paperwork, both the Spanish and the American teams. And then he gets back to uh, Savannah to turn in the boat that he had, and then he hires a, a schooner to take everybody back to um, Philadelphia. Four years. Pretty amazing. It was amazing. I, the, amazing the story you just told about going around uh, Florida, the, the thought that crossed my mind with all the activity going on there with the pirates and whatever. Uh, right. I guess we could honestly say then that before there was a wild, wild west, there was a wild, wild east. <laughs> well, there definitely was that. Exactly. <laughs> there definitely was that. Yeah. Well, this is really a compelling story, and, and I know that there's going to be a lot of people are going to want to hear about this. One of the things that I get here at, at the office in my connection with all of our state groups and, and other groups of people is folks are always looking for somebody to come and tell um, a, a good story, you know, at their banquets or whatever the case may be. Um, and so just from my background as being a surveyor and how intrigued I've been by all of this, this, this book and not only the book itself, but the story of the book. I think probably the the process, the the, un, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to think of the right terminology here. The, the the unsuspecting things you found and how you found them, uh, uh, yeah, just, really, just to be able to write the story is a story within itself. So, uh, I mean, there there are I'm all kinds most, of twists I'm and turns. I'm almost here. most proud of of actually finding the names of the rowers that rowed them down. The <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's you know, you can find a lot of stuff in the library of the Congress, but this is pretty good, really. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And so what do people do if they want to buy the book? Is it uh, the book uh, yeah. Well, I actually have you can get it on, on Amazon. Okay. And it's twenty nine ninety five and then tax and shipping. Um, and and that's a, a way to get the book. I, I'm selling a, a special book, the book and uh, I've taken pictures of six of the maps out of that journal. They are absolutely gorgeous. I've blown them up 11 by 17, so they're huge. And um, I thought the – and I've sold some of them. The book just came out about a month ago, but I thought the surveyor would really be interested in there. So if you want the maps and the book, that is $49.95, but that includes taxes and everything. So really, it's about another $15 for the maps. And then you can go online uh, at my website, um, georgiahistorypress.com. That's the book's website, georgiahistorypress, all one word, dot com. Um, and you, you can buy it through Amazon on my website, or you can just go to Amazon. Or if you want those maps, uh, go to my the georgiahistorypress.com. So I guess the the next big question in our last couple of minutes here is, uh, are you worn out with surveying now, or is there something else on the horizon? Uh, right now, I'm worn out. <laughs> I'll tell you what. My, here's here's what I'm now. 
Ellicott was a member of the American Philosophical Society. He was vice president. He put he wrote sixteen scientific treatises in their um, transactions. They call them. His father was a member of the American Philosophical. It, it was started by Benjamin Franklin. Ellicott and Franklin were friendly. I have a letter between that Franklin wrote to him. Um, but the APS in Philadelphia, still in existence right now, uh, hardly recognizes him. Now, I sent a copy of this book to the new executive director, Keith Thompson, and uh, I'm trying to push Ellicott. And he said to me when he got it back, he said, I'm going to see what I can do to make, you know, Ellicott more noticeable. And that's a big goal that I'm on right now. And I'm trying to push my way into Dr. Thompson's life. So I don't want to be too pushy here, but I'm just trying to get Ellicott where people know who he was. And he, he's dead and his family's all dead, but uh, he was a hell of a guy and we need to honor him. Yeah, and and again, falling back into our our uh, identity issues as surveyors, um, for, and obviously this was a long time ago. But the importance of what he did and others like him uh, that made our profession what it has and what it is right. and should be um, is something we we certainly need to to think about as well because. Um, these are the people who formed our our country, uh, you know, at least positionally, <laughs> uh, not not from a battle perspective, but certainly formed the country for how the rest of us perceive it and and our boundaries, as you pointed out in the book. So uh, we we're in our last minute, so I I want to be sure I get in the fact that I am so pleased that you were able to join me again today, Bill, and and hopefully we can do this again somewhere down the road. But great. it's been a it's been a great show for me and and I know for our listeners and I, I'm sure it has sparked a lot of interest. Good. Very good. Well thank you for asking me um and thanks for helping me you know with with reading the book and endorsing it and uh We'll get together again, I'm sure. Yep, we will do that. As a matter of fact, I'll see you okay. in October when I'm coming down to head over to Troy, so I'm looking forward exactly to that. Exactly right, and I'm going to have to take you out, I guess, to lunch <laughs> or dinner or something like that. Sounds great. Give me I those appreciate dates. It. Send me the dates. Thank you. I'll do that. Thank you so we'll much. Do. Okay, Thank you again, Bill. Bye-bye. I really appreciate you being with me today. Yep, thanks. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.